Greetings there, SE Land. This is Twig, Anthony Twig Wheeler. I'm here with another podcast episode for Twig's SE Reflections. This is a podcast series for SE students and practitioners everywhere, folks that are studying the psychobiological literature and applying somatic healing arts to their work with clients. I am chatting up you today on a question, a kind of a choice point, a place that we're often looking what's going to happen next, trying to predict, trying to get some kind of sense of what's about to come. And it's all on this question, will this, will this become an I can element or this, will this become an I can't element of experience? That's, that's the subject, that's the title. Let me try to unpack the title even, just so I can get us going in the right direction together. You know, there are moments, uh, in fact, the session, any session is made up of a continuation or a continuous stream of moments. And some of these, in somatic experiencing in particular, bring people toward the attention of themselves, observing themselves, witnessing themselves. Okay, lots of things do that. And there's a certain kind of thing that maybe Paul Shepard would have called time-binding. Uh, Peter often thinks of the... He names something that I hear that I would call time-binding as stitching, stitching elements of experience, like moments of, of, of attention, one to the next, you know? It's like there's a continuous thread of attention. I think I saw on Stephen Hoskinson's website a long time ago the application of exquisite attention as a explanation for what it is that we're doing. I think that's that's really nice. We're trying to apply this exquisite style of attention to track things over time, watch what changes, notice those changes, help our body, nervous system, um, mind, all of that to incorporate and integrate these differences and changes. Okay. Can I do better than that? I think I can do better than this. There are moments in a session when a person is closing their eyes and you think to yourself, should I let them close their eyes or not? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Is that going to lead to more of the right thing or going to disorganize or send us astray from things continuing to progress with various different goals that we have in mind, pendulation, activation, deactivation, change, differentiation, the noticing of those things as they happen, et cetera, et cetera. There are other places too, right? Like whether or not this movement of the head and neck moving off to the left, should should I allow that to happen? Or if we continue to feel that, is everything going to get locked up? Or the feeling state going to come on and say, oh, I can't I don't like that. I don't want to do that. I shouldn't do that. And then stop it. There are continuous reinforcements or moments that are redoing again and again and again. This question or calling it forward in our minds. Should I let this happen or not? Should I encourage this to happen or not? Should I redirect the attention at this moment or not? Should I balance the attention? Should I ask another question? So as to make it so that they don't pay as much attention to this, should I give them more space so they have more time to pay attention to this? Is this going to, I can itself, is this going to be successful? Or is this going to, I can't itself? 
and therefore somehow reinforce failure or learned helplessness or some kind of disturbance away from some deleterious sense of, yeah, this is moving and progressing and doing itself of itself, which is a trick. Things will do themselves of themselves that'll go in the wrong direction for you. So, and they're attractive and they'll feel like that's what you want to follow or a client wants to follow. But there's a question, will this eventually lead to, I can't, will it just be a repetitive, I close my eyes and I dissociate again, went away. It's just a repetitive, oh, we allowed the tension in the neck on the left side to pull. The the neck started to turn. As it starts to turn, the right side feels, oh, I was going to pull too, or I don't want to pull that much, or that's too far out of the range of motion of what I've become accustomed to doing. I'm going to tighten down again, and now we'll have muscles on the left side of the neck and muscles on the right side of the neck kind of competing with one another, co-contracting, and sending a solid signal to somewhere in there, person through pain or emotion or some kind of some feeling state that says, this isn't going to work, this is bad, I got to stop this, you know, either by muscular tension or feeling state. There are all kinds of places where this comes out. It comes out, you're just asking people questions. Are they answering you or not? Is the, are the answers spontaneous? Are they engaged in the rapport of the back and forth between you? Would you be better off to talk faster? Would that help things become more I can here, more enlivened? Should you talk slower? Do they need more space and time to be successful? And so that rather than continuing to ask your questions quite so quickly or with the pattern or pace that you've been doing for a moment, you realize, oh, maybe if I give them more time, they won't feel as pressured and therefore they'll be more likely to succeed here. There are hundreds of moments inside of a session where we might, consciously or not, be assessing, should I let this happen? Should I encourage this? Is this going to go toward I can? Or should I do something to help this be more successful and or less unsuccessful? and help minimize the impact of this going toward I can't. Well, that's that's a good one. That's a good one. To me, this is this is astute. And I was just in Western Massachusetts meeting with a group of SE folks, real keen, sitting there working together day after day, about four days we spent thinking hard and uh, doing a lot of sessions with folks, which were all being observed. And this question came up a few times. How do you know if you should allow that to happen? And how do you know when it's not a good idea or you need to support it more? Well, what are we going to do here? Let's say that behind this for me, behind the answer of that choice point over and over again, is a general principle. For me at least, I it, it's come down to something of a simple question or principle that then gets elaborate. Yeah. Okay, so the principle, of course, is the I can principle, which has the notion that the organism has a certain kind of intelligence given to it that 
we come as species, as members of our species, as Homo sapiens sapiens, we come into this world with a structure, a structure that has a certain organization to it, right? This organization has certain rules. Some of these rules are local rules. Some of these rules are quite kind of informed by multiple different processes all at once. Nevertheless, we have ways that our body, our organism, our brain, etc., etc., works. Some of these work with our active participation, where we do things to make them happen. Like you pick up your tea cup and you turn it towards your mouth and you get to drink. That's part of how you get to drink nowadays. You know, at one time you might have used your hand and kind of cupped up some water. At another time, back way, way back when our jaw was made very differently than it is now, we might have put our mouth into a water stream in order to pull the water out as though do, say, canids, right? Dogs and wolves and such. Meaning that our bodies have relationships to not only ourselves and internal processing, but also how we engage with the environment around us. This is kind of like being fit for the world, stuff that evolution helped us do. In fact, stuff that is the stuff of evolution. The reason it all works is because evolution natural selection, the selective process that helps to reproduce genes and help our organisms develop over phylogenetic time, over extended period of time of a selection of things working and not working, has led to a pretty elaborate, pretty elaborate template about like what works and what doesn't, what our bodies are going to be able to do inside of a certain environment, how we're going to be able to move and of course, that comes with all the limits. We can't just vaporize and, and go on the wind and show up somewhere else. You and I in real life will actually move in order to walk there or move in order to engage perhaps, yeah, a modern machine that will help take us there, a bike, a car, some kind of horse device. And yet there will be rules to how we can get from point A to point B. And we can't just, you know, do other things, can't just jump, <laughs> you know, kangaroo can jump. Kangaroo's got a different organization and intelligence going on with that. Some of these intelligent elements of our experience and our bodies are very behind the scenes, very signal process oriented, very, very somehow simple inside of their mysterious complexity, somehow very, very basic. This proton touches that neutron they connect in a certain kind of way because of this polarity that they share now together and they're attracted there are receptors on the outside of cells that act like little gatekeepers or keys or doorways kind of things for things to latch on to that match each other they fit one's a triangular thing with a little bump another one's a triangular thing with a little dip and the two of them match like harmony. It's beautiful. This elaborates all the way up through our process where we get in our organism and its processing, where we get various different signals like these kind of basic cellular elements that go on in us. And they elaborate. They get more and more complex. They join together and do more and more things together 
because of the influence that they can accumulate. Yeah? Okay, eventually that gets to be our behavior. Isn't that amazing? It's pretty amazing. When it becomes our behavior, at the level of our behavior, it's a... Um, it's, it's very dynamic about what's going on behind it. And we're, you know, I'm not going to try and pretend like I know and understand the whole thing there, but I will say that it's pretty obvious. This is pretty obvious. Some of it signals back into our organism in a way that supports the overall and, yeah, the, the local and overall um, kind of feedback of the organism. And it kind of suits us, the whole of us, intelligently. Other signaling can feed back into the system and maybe perhaps be locally advantageous and on a system or systemic level at the level of our organism can be deleterious, can be harmful, can affect us poorly. Fair? That seem fair? It seems fair to me. Okay, you could have cell processing um, of of different metabolic tasks going on in any part of our body, some organ in our body, and it's going well. Things are transpiring, moving. Various different chemicals are being, you know, moved into something else, and parts of it are being eliminated out of the body, and the organ functions well. Yeah, and we feel good because it's doing that. You could have it on the other side. You know, cells go awry. They stop doing their processing. They stop trying to get rid of their waste. They stop doing something or they do something else extra that then when it feeds back into the system causes bad stuff to happen. You know, cancers and all that kind of stuff. What is this? This is... Things that are going in the right direction and things that are being deleterious and going in the wrong direction. It's quite a continuum. And it's, it, it's, it's kind of endlessly fascinating at all the different places where it either goes well or goes awry. It's endlessly fascinating to dissect it down into all of the different you know, systems and symptoms that come out of things working or not working. It's dramatic, and it happens, apparently, at all levels of the body, from the way our various different, just very, very low, small, defined elements, like things in our blood, white blood cells and such, going off, working, doing their thing, very creative, up through cellular reproduction or tissue reproduction with cytoblasts and collagen fibers repairing a a twisted ankle or a wound from the original invaginations and, and folds that our early cellular tissue did when we were in utero, right at the beginning of our kind of developmental process, our, our, our life, up through, up through combinations that include the choices that we make, the whether we turn down this dark alley or don't turn down this dark alley, how our body is able to take in neuroceptive cues of whether or not the subsystems of the autonomic nervous system are functioning in one dominant state or another 
making it so that as we encounter the environment, we're not, say, if the dorsal vagal system is more dominant when we're in a social situation that should be signaling safety, and thus we're reading this safe environment in a more dangerous kind of way, it will affect our behavior. And like the cells at the cellular level having processing that either helps our organism or doesn't, we could kind of miss the goodness of this social situation that is safe enough and instead experience ourselves as though we're under threat, which will um, put us at odds with getting the goodness that's to be found in hanging out with nice people. Look at this. It's multi-leveled and it runs through a basic kind of thing that could be filtered as things are going in the right direction, things are going in the wrong direction. The intelligence of the organism here is being able to express itself. It's being disrupted in this direction. And this definitely comes down to issues of trauma or what we might think of as traumatology, how the nervous system organizes itself in relationship to successful action of self-protection and the ability to respond in a dynamic world, this planet, other things moving around us, us with our need to maintain sufficient homeostasis or allostatic load in the body so that internal, you know, physiological processing can happen intelligently without costing us unnecessarily, and our relationships with the world around us so that if something in the world around us asks for our attention, we're able to give it to it and not be confounded otherwise. Big, deep, grand. On one hand, we can do things. I can do that. And that process can be successful, whether or not it's a full spontaneous breath, the involuntary nature of the autonomic nervous system indicating to us a good piece of evidence that we'd like that breath to be an involuntary action, spontaneous of itself. And can we allow that breath to do itself? If so, the feedback of that into the system will be sustaining, right? It'll be like, oh, that's the thing I want to do. Or will that breath be curtailed? The fascial system is too tight around the ribs and so everything gets locked up. You know, there's too much too much damage done by former smoking so that when the breath comes in, it irritates various different alveoli and such inside the, the lungs. And, and so we ugh, cough, you know, there's, there's other tension patterns. There's learning and conditioning to say, no, don't take the full breath. Don't be seen moving that much. There's also just the repetitive nature of the dorsal vagal system calling down on the breath saying, don't breathe don't breathe. I told you to conserve energy until this danger is gone. And if the nervous system is perceiving that the body's still in danger, we could still be having an active instruction to conserve energy and not breathe very much. There's so many different reasons that a breath might not be able to be its spontaneous at ease full self. And yet we can see how, you know, within the context of natural selection and the idea that our bodies are pretty smart for working on this planet and given appropriate learning and success with action as our ancestors and their ancestors and their ancestors, at least the ones that have passed on their genes, have all expressed at a pretty high degree, this, this organism that we live in, it works. And sure, on small scale and local scale and at any point in between, it can be disrupted or requested upon it 
to be able to do other things. I need to run away from this danger. I need to push back against this thing that's falling on me. The body is ready and able to protect itself. It's got these plans or these patterns that it can enact for that protection. There just gets into another question. Can I do this action or not? All the way through, you'll hear, can this happen? Can't this happen? Will this reinforce success? Will this reinforce failure? Will this lend the organism toward the direction of being able to do the thing it's trying to do? And those things being to fall, hopefully, ideally in this case, to fall within the pattern of prepared learnings that our evolution has kind of said, oh, that'll make my body work better. Or will, will that be frustrated or thwarted by some, some kind of curtailment? the cage, the cultural cage, the physical cage, bondage, being not able to move, not being able to move because your nervous system understands the complexity of the environment and says, hey, if you try to move here, that'll make it worse than if you don't move. So it's better for you not to move and just stay still. One way to get at this, and you'll hear me, if you ever hang out, you'll hear me go like, oh, Bob Scare, Robert Scare, what a great guy. And he wrote that book, The Trauma Spectrum. Totally worth going back and checking it out if you haven't done it. And he names out that, you know, there's a spectrum whereby the nervous system is either working more in relationship to regulation, self-regulation, cycling. This is very SE, of course smooth cycling of the autonomic nervous system between different subsystems, you know, we can then essentially just move right into the polyvagal theory and say, you know, when things readily move in and out of the stress response, when ventral vagal orientation engagement with the environment is overwhelmed, not able to succeed at getting us back to the sense of safety just about as fast as possible, maybe we'll end up going into the fight or flight reaction. Okay, that's the sympathetic system turning on. If we're able to get back to the sense of safety soon enough, right enough, well enough, get that signal, we can come back to ventral vagal dominance. It's just a very basic pattern, very, very patterned process of the nervous system of our evolution of mammalian biology. Okay, we can't get away. Well, there's another subsystem. Should we need it? Sure, it'll happen because of disillusion. We'll go to an older response. However, it'll be more advantageous for us to follow that response. That'll be an I can kind of thing. If we're continuing to fight when our nervous system is telling us to freeze, that's putting us in more danger. If we're trying to run when our nervous system said, don't move, we're trying to collapse instead, that'll, that'll only confuse things and make things more I can't. Okay, there are these patterns of responses, things that our bodies want to do, can do, when we get into a dangerous situation. Other things like that happen all the way down to the fact that we breathe in and out, that transpiration happens, that our bodies will sweat when they need to, that our temperature will stay more or less as even as it can. We'll even sequester fluid in our kidneys that will get us cold urine. We will feel colder as we gain fluid in our kidneys and you'll get the sense that you have to go pee. If you do go pee when you're cold, you'll notice yourself feeling warmer. Your body won't have to hold the heat inside of the urine anymore. There's an important reason that happens. Your urine has to stay sterile so we don't have bacterial load from our urinary tract and such. So 
here's a rule inside of our body, just one of millions, apparently. We have to keep our urine at a certain temperature. That that's at the core, it's one of the cores of keeping our body at a certain temperature. We're going to try and keep our whole body at a certain temperature, but should we get chilled, should the environment be too cold, we will definitely try to keep our urine warm enough, even if that means our fingers and our toes will go cold. Well, should we eliminate that urine, not have to maintain the heat of it anymore, all of a sudden, our body, within moments probably, will feel a little bit warmer. This this is intelligent. And it runs all the way through. Can I do this or can't I do this? The I can principle. Well, on one end of the spectrum, the trauma spectrum, call it the resiliency spectrum if you, if you can for me. I'll, I'll do that. Join me up as you like. On one side, there's this notion. I can do the things that my body's trying to do. Voluntary, involuntary. I can do the passions that I'm after. Does that, you know, like the things I come up with that I'm trying to do this, my autonomy, my expression of trying to be myself, including my heart trying to beat itself, my breath trying to do itself, the tension patterns in my body trying to move through themselves, the movement patterns in my body trying to move through themselves, the fascial system being able to move as I try to move myself all the way through. I can do this. And you look down the spectrum toward the other direction and you see a Degree by degree, the sense of increasing, I can't do this. Now you get all the way to the end of that spectrum, you know, somewhere you just don't move anymore. The motive force is taken all out of it. It's, it's the, the moves moves is gone. On that far end of the spectrum, long before we just don't move anymore, but further down than any of the I can stuff is a place where scientists, they call that learned helplessness and that's a nervous system process there where the nervous system has learned just like it does lots of other things learns how to move how to incorporate different signals that tell it certain kinds of things it's a real learning system really 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 good at learning and it can learn that the movements that i've tried to make the actions i've tried to take the things i've tried to do haven't been successful and they've only been associated with things going wrong, better not to move. Better not to try to make this any worse. Better to stay just right here. Learned helplessness. It's this place along the resiliency spectrum, the trauma spectrum, where the organism just says, don't try to, don't do anything anymore. Don't do anything anymore because every time you try to do something, you fail. Every time you try to do something and you fail, you make it worse. So just... Stay here, stay put, don't just wait. Well, you know, of course, the environment, it's dynamic. The earth is dynamic, the world is dynamic, and people, if we get to modern level, just where we are, society is very, very dynamic. It's not an easy place to just be inert and inside of your failure, your sense of I can'tness. It's not an easy world to maneuver inside of when you're withdrawing from it. And the nervous system, of course, has a patterned response to withdraw from it on a temporary basis. Should the environmental context or even the internal milieu say, this is sufficiently dangerous enough that I shouldn't bring any more attention to myself, more or less I should use the oldest response on the ner of the nervous system to responding to stimulus, 
I should conserve energy, more or less shut down, and not do things. Now, just to say, if you can allow that to happen, then you're still inside of the I can principle. But if you thwart that, stop that, force that not to happen, consistently and continuously struggle against the I need to not do things signal, then you're reinforcing the sense of I can't. Not you personally, dear listener, but the notion of it. So I make a little jump there. You see that I make a jump. When I go to the I can principle, I take it from the notion of the nervous system being able to, the organism really on a broad scale, but the nervous system in particular from a trauma perspective, being able to do the thing that it's trying to do and relieving the nerve force of that as it goes and feeling the success of it, the triumph as Peter Levine might name it out sometimes. On the other side, the sense of, I can't do this. I can't be allowed to do this. I, you know, consciously or unconsciously, probably mostly unconsciously, I stop these things from being able to happen. Their signal perhaps has gotten so thwarted that they don't even know what they would want to do if they were getting to express their, quote, organic intelligence. In fact, they can get quite confused inside of that signaling, inside of the feedback they've received, and they can learn not to try to do things or to get in the way of things that might be helpful, like in the case of those sad, sad studies of, yeah, sad, sad studies of learned helplessness, you know, the, the dogs and animals that have, have succumbed to that condition won't move on their behalf in order to go get food, even when the danger, supposedly, has been removed from them. Here, here we see it all the time, all the time inside of our sessions, there is this balancing act happening between whether or not a person can allow this thing to happen, including the metaphor of that. Can this happen? Is this an I can moment? Or is this an I can't moment? Will this reinforce the same fixity, the same repetition, the same thwarted impulse, the same lack of congruence, the same incoherence? Will this simply reinforce, repeat, give feedback to the system that this isn't going to be valid and valuable? I'm not going to be able to do this? Or will this, in fact, be something that the organism can succeed with and reinforce and learn? Yes, learn, even now, even when we've gotten really, really tired and put back. The organism still has, as Paul Shepard used to say, what did he used to say? There's a secret undamaged person in every individual and inside of us there is this intelligence waiting still in parentheses of course inside of that confusion it's going to need some intelligent positive reinforcing signal some signal that says this is the direction we want to go now and that that's going to come a lot from in our work what we do or don't do in parentheses well how you doing there? You making your banana bread? Yeah? You in the kitchen? Driving your car? Whew! SE Reflections. This is episode 77. The question is, is this going to become an I can or an I can't element? I think you'll see that this leads into several different places, particularly for us inside of sessions. Can this person be embodied to this experience? 
Can this person see this thing in the image channel? Can they feel this sensation without it turning red, 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 red? Can this person notice, you know, that this, uh, you know, request to allow this moment to happen? There are so many different places and ways that the I can principle plays itself out inside of our sessions that having a kind of consistent or constant, just a little balance going on between the question, can this happen? Can't this happen? Will this happen? Won't this happen? Which direction will this go in if we let it happen? If I need to, what do I need to do in order to follow the basic rule? The basic rule of it is that we're trying to maximize success and we're trying to minimize failure. That's how I think of the ICANN principle. I'm trying to maximize success and I'm trying to minimize failure. All the more important in the practitioner-client relationship, the SE practitioner-client relationship, all the more important that any signal or potential for failure doesn't come from my requests. Any potential or likely failure doesn't come from my requests as a practitioner that I'm not responsible for helping my clients fail. I'm more responsible, I want to be responsible, and I want to be extremely vigilant to the extent that, you know, you need to be all relaxed and zen-like and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I don't know about zen-like, but you need, to, you need to kind of be yourself and at ease, you know. But there's a certain vigilance for, I'm trying to help people succeed here. I'm trying to help them not fail. I'm trying to help them succeed more. I'm trying to help them fail less. Inside of the fail less category, there's at least two, maybe there's more, but there's at least two different ways that that request or expectation for failure can come, right? One is that I can be responsible for it based on my requests as a practitioner. I could ask of you things that are going to lead to your certain failure. Or I could ask for things that could lead to your success but might lead to your failure unless the right things or combinations of the request is made in just the right way so as to garner your success rather than your failure. On the other hand, requests are, you know, one way to think of it is requests are coming from the client all the time or expectations from the client, the patterns of the client, the, the just drive that they experience. And with it, they, they might be setting themselves up for failure. They might be asking for too big a change. They might be feeling things too much. They might be paying attention too much to the thought and how it makes them feel. There might be all kinds of reasons that they of themselves are going to reinforce the sense of I can't. Try to make a marriage happen when they haven't been dating yet. There are all kinds of ways that we set ourselves up for trying to do too much, including Simple things like controlling the next breath so as that we'll feel better for a moment, thinking that we're making ourselves feel better, but what we're actually doing is getting in the way of the I can principle that says my organism actually wants to be able to take its own kind of breath, and once it's able to do that and re-regulate itself, the breaths that it will take will be better than the managed breaths that I consistently, unconsciously, and sometimes consciously force myself to take in order to kind of calm myself down so that I think I can make myself feel better 
that actually can easily reinforce the I can't side of my organism has something smart that it wants to do and I won't let it happen because somebody told me how I was supposed to take a breath and I got a little wind of how that helped me temporarily feel better or some such like that. It's dynamic. It's dynamic. I can ask you as a practitioner for things that you can't do. What do you notice in your body now, Twig? I don't know. Well, if I ask you again, I'm reinforcing the fact that you can't do that. Yeah, until I readjust that, mitigate that, make that somehow different so that when I ask that question, you can succeed at answering it. It goes from feeling to response to engagement all the way through. I can or I can't. I'm trying to maximize success, trying to maximize what we can feel is possible, what can be done, trying to minimize the feeling of what can't be done or what will reinforce the sense of failure. Of those, of course, you can't control what your clients think. You can't control what your clients do. You can't control their behavior. You don't want to control their behavior. You're trying to get to the I can principle. You're not trying to reinforce their I can't by telling them how, what and how to do things. So there's a certain kind of movement toward autonomy and permission where we're hoping that as much as possible we can maximize people's success, their own rightness of themselves. On the other hand, they'll, you know, They'll have things you can't control. You're going to see a lot of failure, particularly when you're hanging out with people who have been impressed upon and um, are are lingering, having constraints and such that keep them further down the resiliency spectrum where they feel generally more encumbered by their experience. It'll be harder for them to feel successful, at the especially at the felt sense intrinsic level, yeah? They'll be feeling all kinds of shortness of breath and tension of body and numbness of state, it will be difficult for them to feel something moving in the right direction. That's of their own experience. You don't need to reinforce that any by asking for things, demanding things, expecting things, hoping for things that they're not going to be able to succeed with. Thus, one of the places this comes to is that in our work, we might have lots of ideals. We do. We do. We should. We want them. They're guiding principles. They're really helpful to know. We're looking for as much embodiment as possible. We're looking for as much participation as possible. We're looking for as much felt sense access as possible. We're looking for as much activation as the person can incorporate and attend to as possible. We're looking for as much orientation as possible. We're looking for as much observer as possible. We're looking for all of these qualities that we've decided and inside the profession have really named out as super, super critically helpful and valuable. And that's the stuff of change where the body is able to attend to its incomplete self-protective responses with a certain quality of attention and an intention to notice what happens, feel what happens, allow it to happen, and see what happens next. At that level of feeling through incomplete self-protective responses, we have this ideal that says the maximum amount of embodiment, slow that down so you can really feel it. Feel it from the inside. This time as you feel it, let's feel it as though it's for the first time so we can really be inside it and really notice what happens with it this time. All of that is true. 
We do. Those ideals are driven by, uh, yeah, they're driven by a real assessment that this, this is valuable and where we want to be going. Well, of course, you need to run that up against the I can principle almost every single time. Sure, you want them to feel that pressure more. Sure, you want them to feel that aggression more. Sure, you want them to allow that freeze to happen more. Sure, you want them to be able to see more qualities in the world around them. Sure, you want them to take more time with that deactivation. Sure, you want them to allow their head to move more involuntarily. Sure, you don't want them to have to control their breath. Sure, you're you're trying to get everything to move freely of its own, etc., etc. You have all of these ideals. Sure, you want them to be able to name their experience. Sure, you do. At the same time, a lot of those ideals will set up your clients, particularly your clients along the resiliency spectrum that are having a hard time. You'll, you'll just set them up for failure every single time. They won't be able to achieve those ideals. If they could, they would already be feeling better. That's part of the point. By being able to attend to those ideals and get to those ideals, you can let your organism do more of what it wants to do. And to the extent that what we're talking about is dysregulation, nervous system dysregulation, get that feeding back more in a self-regulating way, and you're going to see people feeling better. It's just part of what happens when the body's breathing well and all the other subsystems are talking to each other without all the conflict between conflicting ideas about and messages about what it's supposed to do. Get it together and people feel better. Get the self-regulation moving, get the I can happening inside the organism, and people report changes that are basic autonomically driven factors of the organism working better and thus having easier thoughts, having easier feelings, being able to go to sleep at night pull this together and you see that your your task is to somehow know those ideals and have your thumb on the pulse of how close or how far away you are from them with any single client at any single moment and to try to adjust your requests and your feedback and you know your guidance to the in the direction to the extent that you try to maximize how much of any one of this moment, how much of this moment can they attend to, can they feel, can they see, can they witness, can they participate with, can they permit, can they watch and not do anything to, how much of that can they do, be successful with it, and how much can't they? And at the level of the I can't, whenever that comes in, to the extent your skills will allow you to do this, you need to do something. You need to do something on behalf of them not failing. At the minimum of this, you need to not have your request be reinforcing their failure. At the maximum of this, you get to guide their attention away from their own reinforcement of things that would cause more I can't and help fill in the gap or redirect or give them something else to pay attention to, etc., etc., of things that they can succeed at. And when you can find those interventions that both allow and encourage a person to maximize what they're doing of themselves already, and you help balance their attention by chatting a little bit more, or you 
don't penetrate so closely into them by looking askance a little bit as you talk to them. So you give them a little bit more space and don't trigger off the shame that comes from too close a contact. And so they can listen to your words because they're not so pressured by your overbearing nature for this particular person. At any one moment, as you change your relationship to people's success and what you ask them to do, you can help them um, actually do what I would say uh, is kind of a central theme behind what we're, what we're all about, which is helping people to reclaim their success and minimize their failure. Do that consistently, even at extremely challenging levels of the trauma spectrum, the resiliency spectrum, where the vast majority of signals are repeating, I can't. Try to minimize the failure found in those I can'ts and by degree, slowly, far, far, far away from the ideal, but close to the ideal of the maximum of what you can do with this person. You can bring a person in freeze to a tiny little bit more attention to themselves. You can help a person who has a tendency to go into freeze to realize, oh, that's not going to be productive right now. This is one example. Oh, that's not going to be productive right now. This is a repetitive freeze that doesn't have other preconditions like self-protective responses or activation, deactivation or organic pendulation or the fear is still overcoupled with this sense of helplessness and immobility. I can't go into this freeze by allowing that fear, that active flight response happening at the same time as we're trying to allow this passive freeze response. Oh, I should come in and do something. I don't have those preconditions in place. As a practitioner, I shouldn't allow this freeze to happen. I should come in and do something. And by coming in and doing something, we can help something else be successful. In this case, not repeating the, the non-productive freeze. There are so many different ways that this comes forward that you're always inside of this question. Can I let this happen? If not, what can I do to minimize how not the what I want this to be, it needs to be. That gets heady, and that gets hard to find, I'll say. Along the way, it's filled up with thousands of little signals where you can see people's spontaneity increase, their permission increase, their involvement increase, their investment increase, their willingness to answer your question increase. And you can see all of those in the other direction where you get more stall where there was spontaneity before. You get more tension. You get more holding. You get less willingness to go along. You get more hums and haws. Now, you hear from the beginning talking with somebody, the hums and the haws and the uncertainty, and you think to yourself, oh, this is already in the wrong direction. No, it's already where it is. And inside of there, you're looking for any success that can happen inside the hums and the haws. Your adaptation for meeting with people at different levels of the resiliency spectrum where they're able to engage with the environment and you and themselves at various different levels. They're, they're able to pay attention to themselves or they're not able to pay attention to themselves for more than a moment or two. And you help them to just pay attention to themselves for a moment or two. And then you let them go from having to continue to do that. You get a success out of that moment or two rather than a failure out of asking them or trying to make them or even themselves trying to make themselves pay attention to something longer 
than that moment or two, which was only going to reinforce their failure. When you're inside the immediate practicality of this, inside the questions of all the things, what do I do, what do I do in order to make this request smaller? How do I make this question not such a big question so it's easier for them to answer? How do I give another moment for us not knowing what's happening here and we maximize that it's okay to let that moment happen, but I've got something to say, something to ask about right after that moment so that if their attention starts to get caught by all of the distress signal inside of having given that extra window of silence. I've got something that will call their attention. Oh, well, anyway, can I ask, how was that buzzing that you mentioned a moment ago before? I have something for them to now pay attention to. I'll keep track of things that I can bring back as I give over a moment of silence to find out if we can maximize this silence, even maximize the not knowing so we can find out what happens next without a preconceived notion of what they're supposed to have already found, which a lot of people go into the request, what do you notice now with? Sometimes it needs to be lengthened out in order for them to actually find out what they notice now. And if you lengthen that out, you get closer to the potential that they're going to fail and therefore in their failure they're likely to fail because they're going to hear more noise that's going to confuse them what else they should pay attention to something else that's of concern in their life how this is not valuable just like every other thing that they do isn't valuable and before they I can't that moment of curiosity you might be sitting there yeah at the edge of your seat very very calmly at the edge of your seat, wondering, am I going to have to ask something else to give them something to pay attention to? Or are they going to come forward with something? Is this going to I can or I can't? And if it's going toward I can't, there will be things that we do. And you're going to have to discover them. You are. You are. I mean, we could make maps and some of us have and, and some of us do and we keep doing it. Okay, let's get a whole communication of lexicon of what we say at different choice points along the session let's do that and you got to get in there you got to try it out you got to be curious is this working is this going in the right direction if not how can i be creative and help it be smaller be bigger be the more something that they'll be interested in something that will minimize their interest is this going right let it keep going is this not going in the right direction what else can I do to minimize its failure and maximize its success, even if those are very, very small, 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 small expressions of it? In my workshop, Practicing Our Lines, the comedy improv one, where I, I adapt comedy improv games, comedy improv theater, so much fun. And I adapt all these learning games that they have for talking about different SE principles and how we communicate with clients and trying to get at various different ways that we can change our instrument, our organism inside of our sessions in order to talk with different people at different levels of the resiliency spectrum and ideally help them find more success and minimize their failure. Inside of that workshop, one of the games that I play is an adaptation from a game, What You Doing Now? And the, the game, it's just a lot of fun. It, it comes out, plays out as a a two-person game with an audience and that two people those two people come up to the front of the room one person starts to do an activity have i mentioned this on the podcast i don't think i've mentioned this so 
I apologize if I've mentioned this. You you bring two people up to the front of the room. One person starts doing an activity, kind of like a mime. They start, say, playing, looking like they're playing basketball. And now the other person, their partner, says, Hey, Twig, what you doing now? Ask that prompt. What you doing now? Name, what you doing now? Hey, Twig, what you doing now? And the person who is miming the activity has to immediately come up with another action that what they are doing doesn't look like, doesn't represent. So I'm floating in the ocean. That's my response to I'm 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 anything under the sun, but it can't be it can't look like this activity. So it can't look like I'm it can't say I'm petting a dog. Yeah, because the action of bouncing a basketball could look in mime form like I'm petting a dog. But floating in the ocean, it's very different. So that's the idea is to kind of trick the brain to have to come up with a category of experience that is different than the activity that's currently being played out. Well, the other player immediately starts miming out the stated comment about what the other player is doing. So I'm floating in the ocean. So immediately, you know, the second player starts acting like they're floating in the ocean. The first player turns around and says, well, what do you, what do you notice now? What are you doing now, Twig? And rather than I'm floating in the ocean, you know, or skydiving, which could be something that looks like floating in the ocean when you're miming it out, you know, I'm typing on a keyboard. And so now the other player starts typing on a keyboard and this pattern goes back and forth until somebody chokes. Until somebody can't do it. Until you see the gears in their mind start just kind of grinding to a halt and, and they're going to miss it. They're not going to come up with it. The feeling of freshness and spontaneity isn't there. You see them working too hard. You see that the time is lasting too long. They say something that's already been said. These are different ways that you can see the person, quote, as we play in the game, choke, to miss it, to undercouple, to not be able to succeed, to I can't. And the, the game, behind being just a lot of fun, gives a feeling state out in the audience of, oh, they're not going to make it. They're not going to be able to do this. It's going to, I can't. And true to form of the game, when somebody chokes, the audience feels it, names it, laughs out loud usually. And as a group, we all kind of clap our hand and say, one, two, three, you're out of there. And the players change out. The victor stays up on stage in the front of the room. Another player comes up from the audience. The game continues. It's a lot of fun. And you can see it play out this kind of sense, this kind of sense that is a key to the practitioner's craft here, where in your seat, as an SE practitioner, you are talking with your client and Dozens and dozens and dozens, countless elements of experience are washing past. People are talking about an experience in tiny little pieces of the association web. Things that they see and things that they mem remember are washing past them. They're speaking faster. They're speaking slower to you. They're feeling things or not feeling things. They're in a Cybam channel that we maybe call meaning, or they're in their emotion channel, their affects, or they're seeing things 
much more in the image channel. They're feeling things more in the sensation channel. They're moving between different channels. They're seeing things and feeling things. As I as I see that, I just I just feel how how I just I I just I get so sad when I I remember what that house looked like. There are all kinds of combinations happening. All kinds of elements of experience. And as the practitioner, you're engaging and you're listening and you're inquiring and you're curious and you're listening for the pendulation and you're helping things turn toward more clinically relevant subjects and signals along the way. And all throughout, all throughout, we're like that audience in that game in my Practicing Our Lines class where we sit there with a kind of apprehension. Is the game still being played? Is this working? Is this still going in the right direction. Can they do this? Can I ask for more embodiment? Can I, can I bring the attention more toward those ideals, those SE ideals, feeling it more, slowing that down so you can really feel it more? Can they do that? If you ask for it, you're still watching. Can they do that? Will they be able to do that? Or will their attention choke? Will they not be able to answer? What do you notice in your body now? Will they fail? Will the failure come from my request? If I ask this question as a big open question, oh, can you tell me, what do you notice now? And they stall. They don't answer. They're going to choke. At that moment, I got to get in there. I got to do something so that they don't choke. I got to make the request smaller. I got to offer in that classic case of the three questions, the three different question types talked about on another SE Reflections episode, podcast episode. The, and in my language guide, actually, the, the, the request, the next one could be smaller. It could be a menu. It could be options. I could give you several options so you don't have to make quite the jump toward being able to answer a big, broad, open question that has no structure, like, what do you notice now? Instead, it might be an offering of, for example, do things feel a little bit um, quieter or a little louder inside? Or do you, do you feel like things are, feel exactly the same as before or different in any kind of way? That's one kind of way to just help them answer the question that they were going to fail at answering before. There might be all kinds of things that we're going to do when a person is going to choke. And as we're sitting with them, we're constantly in the audience chair. Is this moment going to be successful? And if not, since that's our task, it's one of our tasks, is to help people succeed and to help them minimize failure, we're saying more, we're saying less, we're asking for more, we're asking for less, we're directing more, we're directing less, we're giving more, we're giving less, we're giving something else for them to pay attention to, we're letting their attention go where it wants to go, we're giving them their autonomy. We're taking it away. We're doing all kinds of things in order to help the feedback that their nervous system is getting, their experience is getting, to be more successful as compared to reinforce or repeat the sense of failure, incompleteness, stuckness, over-control, etc., etc. How do you know? Well, you get in there and you try. You get in there and you feel it. What do you do? Well, you get in there and you try. And you get in there and you stumble. And you get in there and you just see how many different ways you can be creative at meeting different people, different places along the resiliency spectrum. What you don't do, what I suggest you don't do, 
is you don't live in some dreamland of ideals that says all of my SE sessions have to look like this and all of my clients have to be able to do this. That might be a direction you're trying to get to, but that certainly isn't how you'll help people succeed getting there. To get there, you'll have to figure out a way to help them succeed it. Enough moments of their experience, elements of their experience that build the momentum toward something different happening, particularly for those folks that you find you hang out with that are having a harder time and spend more time conditioned down along that more challenging side of the resiliency spectrum. So can I say more about this? I probably could say more about this, but is this enough? Don't you think this should be about enough for now? I think so. I hope your baking, your dishes, your car ride has been real nice. I look forward to sharing with you more sometime soon. Okay. Bye-bye now. Get up, get up, get up, get up, get up, get up. And here's a tracking twig moment. I've just returned home from Western Massachusetts where I was meeting with the SE learning community there. We had a lot of fun. We, some of us came out for a workshop I did called Where to Start, how to get clients moving in the right direction over a first 10 session series kind of thing. I'll be bringing out more information about that and the material on the web, but it was a lot of fun for me. Thanks, everybody, for joining in with that. Also, we had a social. People came out. We had dinner. We laughed. We talked. We talked about things other than trauma. It was great. Thank you, everyone. It was good to see you. And I hope everybody's just going to keep doing things like that whenever the impulse arises or whenever it can happen. I'm headed out to Tucson, Arizona very soon. Going to be there doing a couple workshops, a day on introducing SE to new clients. Yes, indeed. And cultivating referral sources, helping people decide to invest and become interested and move things in the right direction when establishing contracts for, for doing SE with folks. That is February 27th, February 27th in Tucson, Arizona. On February 28th, there'll be a demonstration day, which kind of focus in on establishing contracts, contracts for keeping things moving and getting things agreeable so that we can do this kind of work. Also on 29th, we're going to have a group consultation. On the 28th in the evening time, we're going to meet in the park, the total social, just meet up, hang out talk about life in the world. We're going to meet at the park and have a potluck, some food sharing, Tucson style. I'll be there. That's February 28th. All that information can be found at my website, liberationispossible.org backslash schedule. Following that, early March, I'm going to Los Angeles. Weekend of March 5th and 6th, I'll be there for Practicing Our Lines, my super fun comedy improv-oriented SE workshop rehearsal. We're going to play with our lines, get more and more comfortable at adapting ourselves to meet with different kinds of clients. And Oh, I'm looking forward to that. Also looking forward to going back to Berkeley, Berkeley, March 25th and 26th. Yes, I'm looking forward to that. Haven't been to Berkeley for a few years. We're going to do practicing our lines there as well. It's going to be its own unique goodness. All of those things can be found at my schedule liberationispossible.org backslash schedule. Okay, I look forward to seeing any of you along the way. That's that.